Well, hi, everybody. How's, how's another week gone by? What's going on out there? Is, is time being compressed in some way? And if it's being compressed, why isn't the Biden presidency over? I mean, if we're going to have time go by quickly, why isn't that gone? <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot, everybody, for joining me today. It's Rick Wagner here, getting it right here on KNZZ, KGL, and your political Viking fighting his war against wrong. Sometimes, you know, it's a heavy load, but I kind of like it. We're here on uh, 1100 and 92.7 on KNZZ and 980 and 101.3 on KGLN. That's four stations plus the Internet and, uh, of course, our podcast that you can download at variety locations. I think we're even on Apple and uh, several others. But you can go right to our webpage, which is uh, com, And you want to go there anyway and look at all the news stories we have up. And uh, you can also get there by going to politicalviking.com since we uh, use that on some of our social media because we are the Viking disruptors out there because I think the only way to straighten out this uh, government is with a hammer. And it's going to take a big hammer. So we need Thor's hammer to get that thing done. And I don't mean the Thor's hammer in these Marvel movies that have just taken the whole ugh, the whole Norse mythology and just made it like, ugh. So I'm talking about the real one, Mjolnir. Yes, that's right. That's the one we're thinking about. Anyway, so we're back this week. A lot to talk about, I think. I hope you guys had a great week. And one I think I decided we'd talk about, well, partly because I'd seen something that I've been thinking about, and it was actually done well, and it's from National Review, which is sometimes hard to say, since National Review is uh, full of this sort of uh, kind of middle ground Republican squishes for the most part. But this was an interesting one that uh, leapt to mind for the National Review, and I thought they did a pretty good job in most of it. It's called, What Happened to Colorado Republicans? Because I've been thinking it, it's probably yet another good time to do a little bit of a post-mortem, as it were, on the moribund body of uh, Republicanism in Colorado after this last election. Let's face it, didn't go well. No, it did not go well. And, uh well, let's see here. I got some notes about kind of how it went. Yeah, let's see. We, uh, and this, this is some stuff, the National Review article, and, uh, did a pretty good job on it. And I, for some reason, I didn't put the author's name on this, but it was from, uh, oh, the National Review in, uh, let's see, the first, uh, the first one month in, uh, the first week or so of, uh, January. And, uh, we had, uh, according to this, and it's exactly true, the election night ended with us having a smaller legislative majority than we've had in a century, they like to put out, uh, zero statewide office holders, and a loss in the near, newly drawn 8th Congressional District, where I thought we might have a chance at getting a, a Republican in there, and should have. And then, of course, we have a Lauren Boebert, who just limped away with less than 500 votes in a 3rd Congressional District that was uh, thought to be relatively, I'm using the word relatively, safe. So... Does that seem like things went according to plan? Ooh, no. And I'm not just talking about how things went nationally, because nationally was pretty disappointing too. But Colorado, we just, we act like we just can't figure that out very well. So I thought this article did a couple of good things. And one of the things they pointed out that when George W. Bush ran in 2004, he carried Colorado. And at that time, Republicans held the state Senate at every constitutional office except the governor up to about 2018. So what what what's happening man? What's what's going on to use uh, some Joe Biden kind of talk there? Well, a lot of things happened. One of course is this whole thing started changing in Colorado when we let this mess start happening at the early part of the 2000s 
with the gang of four who decided, and rightly so, and as I've said before when I've discussed this, I is kind of genius. Uh, I mean, it seems obvious now, but with these uh, multi-millionaires, and some of them are more than just multi, like two or three million, but hundred millionaires, you know, they're not quite billionaires. Well, Pat Stryker might be, but uh, they're but they're hundred millionaires, some of them. And at that time, uh, that included Polis, who you may recall as the governor, and was reelected, by the way. Pat Stryker, who owns a, uh, I think, a medical uh, device company and a few other things. Tim Gill and a fellow named Rut Bridges. And remember what they did is they decided to pool some money and then pour it into selected legislative districts uh, kind of a little bit late in the game to sort of flood money into these races. And a lot of the races, you know, for uh, state rep or state senate and things weren't really that expensive. I mean, to you and I or anybody that, you know, wage earners, yeah. But compared to like a national race or congressional race, there, there was not that much money. And in the smaller places, uh, you know, in, in even western Colorado and southeastern Colorado and up in northwestern Colorado, those races didn't raise and use a lot of money. So by lurking in the background and choosing a few of these targeted races and then at the last minute throwing a thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 into them, just bang, they were able to have a real impact. Nobody expected it, couldn't figure it out, you know, how to fight it at the end there. And they started making a real dent and they kept it up and they kept refining their methodology. And they also started giving money to groups to do other things besides just give them the candidates. They went out and did all sorts of uh, voter registration stuff. They went out and they worked with all these different groups. They put their money to work and frankly, they put it to work in a fairly unified and effective way which we have not been able to do here with Republicans, as you may recall by last few elections. Even when money gets put out there, it seems like it's just frittered away and spent on things that you look at and you go, I don't know what, what difference that made. We don't have a unified purpose. We don't have a unified voice. Um, there's a problem with the statewide party. There's no question about it. I think there's some people in it that are working hard, but they're working in different directions. Uh, if you if you could imagine like a team of horses and there's say let's say four of them and they're pulling in the same general direction but about 30 degrees apart so yeah they're headed west but one's headed straight west one's headed northwest one's headed southwest that's the feeling you get from this party and the big problem that we have i think over here where i'm at and listen for those of you that are not in colorado plenty of listeners in utah but and on the internet, you you've got the same kind of problem, and some of this has happened in your state as well. And if you have George Soros prosecutors in some of your state, where he's dumped some money into a prosecutor's race, once again dumped a large amount of money for the usual expenditure of the race on somebody, and before you know it, uh, the other guy who thought he needed to spend, you know, let's say a big city prosecutors thought he'd have to spend one hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars on his race. The other guys just got, you know, an extra 200 grand dropped on them or a million dollars in some of these big cities, you know, halfway through. And the airwaves are full of things about uh, the opponent that uh, he has no way to fight back. And people don't pay a lot of attention to those races anyway. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in the next segment. But this is kind of the key to this, because oddly enough, in some of the smaller races, 
unless you're in a really small area where people actually know the candidates, but if you're in like a medium-sized district or a smaller one where, you know, it's it's thousands of people and they don't really know the people as well as they could, the ability to craft an identity for someone just through media and events and things like that, that just with money, in other words, uh, is pretty effective. We always think of that big money kind of thing in terms of national politics, right? And we'll talk about the kind of money that got spent on that here in Colorado for our some of our statewide offices and uh, congressional races. But uh, in the smaller ones, we, we kind of forget when we think about getting money out of politics. We're thinking about getting, you know, the guys that are giving, you know, $436 million to voter registration efforts, you know, if you're Mark Zuckerberg or something. But in the meantime, you can have an enormous effect in these smaller races with much much less money. But it's still significant money in that race. And that's frankly what these guys figured out. And they target them. They're very smart about it. And they get in and they identify the opponent in a way that he has trouble fighting back on because he doesn't have access to the media money and expenditures that they, the other person does. And it doesn't take much in some of these places. So outside money can have a, have a very outsized impact on these races without it being a ton. And so we're so focused on getting money out of national politics, we forget about how outside money affects All right, back. Thanks politics. a lot, folks. Hanging on there. What were we talking about here on Getting It Right with Rick Wagner, the Rick Wagner Show? Oh, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, money. That's what we were talking about, money and politics, and about how we're so focused on money and politics in the national level, kind of that general way, that we've kind of forgotten about uh, how much money affects local politics sometimes. And even statewide races have gotten incredibly expensive these days. Now, we all know that some of these Senate races, especially this last time around, became wildly expensive. And it must be effective. Look at Pennsylvania. The, uh, what is it? The Brockton behemoth there, uh, Fetterman got elected. Uh, <laughs> notice how little you've heard from, uh, the behemoth since, uh, his election. Anything heard much about that? No, not a darn thing. Although, you know, I, his wife's made a couple of, uh, camera appearances. Uh, I've always had this theory that she just assumes that he's probably going to, uh, you know, withdraw in some way and the governor will make her, as that seems to be a thing that happens, uh, make her the senator, you know, for his place, appoint her. So that's kind of the, uh, that's my psychic prediction for that. But yeah, so that was an enormously expensive race and it must have worked because uh, the behemoth was elected to, uh, to the Senate. We'll see what kind of, uh, wonderkin he turns out to be. He, of course, is uh, clearly uh, vice presidential material um, only because uh, you have to find somebody who is less able to articulate a position than the present president. So it's a race, really, between him and Kamala. Kamala uh, says words that are sometimes more complete, but to be fair, they are no better organized than Fetterman. So... You know, they have that thing going on there. But I think that Kamala will be the running mate for Joe, assuming that the left doesn't take him out, which they appear to be trying to do with this, all of these weird discoveries of his, uh, oh, the Corvette papers, we could call them, the vet papers, the unvetted vet papers. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange the way that stuff popped up and the way the media is all of a sudden treating him like this when many people out there think that he has served his purpose. And it's now time to see him stumble off into the sunset uh, with Jill perhaps uh, leading him by the hand. Uh, reluctantly, I think Jill probably wants him to, you know, stay in the office because they're really both in office, it appears to me, uh, more than anything. But anyway, so those are some pretty wildly expensive races. Now we had a, you know, pretty expensive race here for governor. If you consider that, uh, Polis, I uh, was reading, uh, spent nearly $50 million, uh, between the two races, this one and the last race. And so that certainly had a lot going on it, but, uh, it must have done something. He actually dubbed, doubled his margin of victory that he had in 2018. And uh, Heidi Ganahl, uh got 39.2% of the vote. And uh, that was actually, uh, according to this article I'm reading here for the National Review, was the worst of any Republican running for statewide office, which is bizarre because I don't think Polis is actually that popular. Well, I know he's not that popular. What he has managed to do is avoid becoming unpopular. Remember, those two things aren't necessarily directly related. You can be popular or you can be unpopular or you can just sort of be not bad. I think the W.C. Fields quote leaps to mind where I asked him about if he liked something and he said, I don't like it. I don't dislike it. I don't mind it. And I think when it comes to Polis, what he's managed to do is craft this sort of image where people don't mind him. He managed to stay out of the line of fire. He learned a lot from his predecessor, Hookenlooper's approach, which was to just goof around a lot and then appoint really nut jobs to do all the dirty work for him and then act surprised when it happened. What the, what the heck? Didn't you sign that? Well, I guess it looks like my signature. huh? Yeah, so that's how he managed to do it. But it's still a pretty bad situation. Now, I was also looking at some of the spending, since we were talking about money, and this article, you know, was, was pretty good too. Now, I, I would have to say as a National Review article, there's a lot of Trump bashing in here. That Trump happened to the party. That was this and that. Well, you can have your opinion about this or that. But, uh, you know, and the quality of the candidates and how aligned they were with uh, the election problems of 2020. But even putting, let's just put that aside. Let's look at the money for a minute. The Democrats outraised the Republicans in the state Senate race with Joe O'Day, who we had on here, two to one, two to one in the Senate race, 12 to one in the attorney general race, which is by, which by the way is really disappointing because, uh, our president attorney general is not someone who I believe is doing, uh, let's say saying that they're not doing a good job is really not saying enough, not doing a job that we would find consistent with the values of most of the state and certainly not the western part of Colorado. And there was a, and this one that just, I just, it just makes me dizzy. And I, I didn't even realize it was this bad until I read this. The Secretary of State, who, Jenna Griswold, who, uh, if you know her, it is to grit your teeth when you hear her name. And she needed to be gone. She's extremely partisan. I don't, necessarily feel as though that the office is being administered in anything, anything like it, like a neutral fashion in any portion of it. Certainly not in the way the elections are administered. And she was, she outspent her opponent or outraised in terms of money 14 to 1. 
She raised 14 times the money that uh, the opponents did. And the, se- the Secretary of State race, it was a two-to-one margin. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, yes, yeah, I'm sorry. Didn't I say Secretary of State? I meant State Treasurer. State Treasurer was a two-to-one margin. So think about that. Those are some pretty huge numbers. Now, I know part of the problem is that there are the near-trillionaire class out there that just floats money out of the coasts, mainly in our area, the West Coast. And I've, I've railed on this before, I know, or rather complained about it. Railed, maybe too strong of a word. And I, I don't really want to do anything directly about it in the sense that I, I think that you start trying to limit campaign contributions you you run into okay that's fine then what's the next step well then your political action committees then you'd mess with them and then you end up where you're at now we're non-governmental organizations the NGOs right where they just fund these not-for-profits that are supposedly to help voting and help turn out the vote and register people and who can who could possibly disagree with that and then you end up having hundreds of millions of dollars spent in swing districts where these organizations go in and essentially organize on behalf of the Democrats uh, or do things that certainly favor the Democrat voter. And so you just can't get completely rid of that kind of effect of money in politics. It's just, it's just not happening. So you have to work around it. And the other thing that happened here in Colorado, and we've talked about this before, is that as much as I agree with everybody out there and feel strongly about the way we vote, we're going to have to learn how to use the Democrats' voting system just as well as they do. We have a huge turnout on Election Day because that's kind of the way Republicans think it ought to go. You know, you have an Election Day, not an Election Month. Well, we saw what happened in Arizona. Now, I can't speak to Arizona exactly without reading all the legal briefs, and even then they go back and forth, I guess, and you could make an a argument one way or another, I have some strong strong feelings about what happened in the gubernatorial race in Arizona and in Maricopa County. But you can see what happened. Remember, they knew, the people running the elections knew that the most of the people that were going to turn on election day were going to be Republicans. And look at all the problems they had. Machines, uh, printers that run out of ink, not enough ballots, uh, people standing in line for extended periods of time. It was just one problem after another. Because... And, and I know this is, this is perhaps conspiratorial thinking, but they had to know that the vast majority of the voters that were turning out on Election Day were going to be Republicans. So, gosh, who did all those glitches hurt? I, I mean, I leave that question unanswered. So we've not got to let ourselves be open to that because you know what it's like? It's a little bit like if you were fighting a war and everybody knew where you were coming from, right? They're going to come through that pass tomorrow. So what do we do? And they know that. They know that most Republicans are going to start voting tomorrow. Uh, they're going to show up at the polls. Gee, if the lines are really long and it takes really a long time and supplies are low and we have to close some of the voting centers for a while while we go get more supplies and this and that, uh, how's that going to affect a close election? Well, I think we know how it affects a close election, don't we? So we just can't fall into that trap anymore. 
We've got to start getting out and we've got to start harvesting ballots just like they do. We've got to get drop boxes out. We've got to make sure that we have people that start voting, you know, the second they get a ballot and follow up with those ballots with everybody to make sure they get them in. And we need to have the computerized system the way these guys have. And I, we've talked about the Eric system, you know, where they are able to track uh, whether or not ballots have been turned back in and where they're at, and then they start going out and trying to get people to return their ballots and all this kind of stuff. We're just going to have to start doing that. And it goes against our grain because, you know, part of us figures like, well, if you don't want to vote, then you shouldn't vote if you don't care enough, right? But that's not how they approach it. They don't see it as people. They don't see it as voters. They see it as ballots. I'm more interested in ballots than anything else. We have to learn. From well, that. let's hope that guitars, Cadillacs, and hillbilly music aren't the only things that help you hanging on in there. We're back. Thanks a lot. Hanging around there. Rick Wagner back again. So I wanted to finish up what we were talking about here with some of these, uh, what went wrong in Colorado and a number of other jurisdictions. Really, Colorado is not particularly unique. We just had some, uh, some interesting things happen, you know, a little s- sneaky, <laughs> you know, as much as I don't like what they did in the early 2000s here when they started working on these uh, 100 millionaires, started putting money together and targeting races, I mean, it's perfectly legal, and it worked. <laughs> you know, you can not like it, but you can't really be mad at them about it. I mean, if we can't figure out how to do it, then I don't know what. Now, we may not have access to the same money, or if we do have access to it, they're they're not – cutting loose of it very fast, but it is something to think about. And this article I was talking about, because it, it spurred a lot in me uh, th- for thinking, that is, you know, I do think sometimes. And one of the points that they brought up is that although Colorado has been going for a lot of Democrat candidates, at least on a statewide, is it doesn't necessarily go for really left Democrat stuff, like in propositions. And I point out, you know, when we Tried to mess with Tabor, that went down pretty hard. When we tried to uh, put a ban on fracking, that went down. Charter schools are pretty popular. There's a lot of fairly conservative things that are popular in Colorado with Colorado voters. But we don't seem to be able to get the candidates popular to go along with those issues. So what's the problem? Part of it probably has to do with candidate selection, let's be honest. Part of it has to do with how we support those candidates. Part of it has to do with the fact that the state seems to be bifurcated down the middle uh, if you want to call the Rocky Mountains the middle between the east and the western slope, and we both have kind of different ideas about things. And so you put those things together, it's it's made it difficult. It's not insurmountable, though. Once you start understanding it, you, you have to look at what the voters want. And, of course, the independents. Now, I know Rush Limbaugh used to talk about, oh, the precious independents, because <laughs> that's what everybody wanted all the time. But that amount has only grown. And in Colorado, it has grown quite a bit. Uh, the independence is extremely large. And we don't know exactly where they land like we used to. I mean, not that long ago. Oh, you know, maybe six, seven years ago, even. It was easier to say that most independents oftentimes were conservative, but for some reason were unhappy with the party or the people in the party that were running it or things like that. And there was obviously some green people in there and, you know, that kind of stuff as well. But it was more of a a conservative libertarian leaning group. Now I'm not so sure. I'm also not so sure that just because we have a lot of Californians and people like that moving here, that that's intrinsically the problem. Uh, 
we've still had some fairly good results in statewide ballot initiatives that were conservative, uh, even though we've had a lot of these folks moving here from California that uh, everybody expects them to drag their problems with them and uh, not be able to understand that all these things that they wanted to do there cause those problems and just not come here and do them here. And then, and wonder, well, gee, why did those problems start here? I don't know. You kept voting for them. There's a little of that. But I just think we have a disconnect between messaging and the message that voters want to hear a little bit and the way we do it. And also, like I said earlier, I think we have a problem with really disliking the way the voting system is run in Colorado and nationally in kind of a general way. And because of that, we've sort of got this uh, I'm taking my ball and go home kind of attitude. And we just don't want to play in that sandbox. Unfortunately, they built the sandbox, and we neither play in it or we don't get to be in it at all. So the thing to do is to beat them at their own game. And there's been some success with that in places. In California, in some of those districts uh, that were back and forth, when Republicans got together, they didn't try and, you know, get in a circular firing squad, and they started using some of the same tools that the Democrats did, but the legal ones, uh, you know, with drop boxes and making sure people were voting. And like I said in last segment, you know, using some of these computer programs to see who voted. And if they haven't voted, and if it looks like they're conservative voters, to make sure they vote in the sense that, you know, try and remind them, try and help them out. And if you can harvest ballots, go get them from them if you have to. We don't like doing that. It strikes us as wrong for most of us to, like, take somebody else's ballot in and, you know, go around to people's houses and pick stuff up. But that's what's happening. And like I said at the end of the last segment, uh, the Democrats don't care about voters. They care about ballots. Now, what that really means is, is that, you know, if I can choose which voters' ballots I get and make sure they get to the uh, registrar's office, then I win. <laughs> it doesn't matter if 10 voters out there don't like me and 10 do. If I get eight of the ones that like me uh, to make sure they vote and only five or six of the ones that don't like me wander around and don't vote, then I get to win, and even if it's skewed the other way. And that's kind of what's been happening. So we've got a lot of work to do. Obviously, this craziness at the Republican National Committee it doesn't help matters any the way that things have come out about the way they've been running things and using money. Uh, we need to have some sort of centralized game plan with a few of these places, and we don't have Silicon Valley to just pump money into everything so that everybody can live high off the hog and still have a lot of money for campaigns. It just doesn't happen that way. So in the first place, fiscal discipline is kind of a standard benchmark for conservatism. So if you can't manage to do that, I don't think you get to call yourself conservative. You probably don't get to call yourself Republican. But there are plenty of Republicans out there that have absolutely no fiscal discipline whatsoever. They've fallen into the same trap of buying votes. Well, you know, I mean, what, are you just outbidding people? Is this become an auction? Is it because, you know, if you have a population who are really just standing there waiting to see who's going to give them the most free stuff, then you're already on such a downhill slide. I'm not to pull out of it. And a lot of that feels that way right now, but I don't think that the majority of people are like that. The ones that do feel like that are just loud. So you have to be able to show people that you can create a better society. 
you can't just give them things. You know, what the Democrats answer is, hey, everything's going really wrong and there's a whole lot of problems, but we're going to give you a little money or some extra padlocks for your doors or whatever it is to mitigate that. But we're not going to fix the problem. We're going to leave the problem just exactly like it is. We're just going to give you stuff so you feel better about the problem. Republicans need to say, we see there's a problem. We want to try and help you out. But we realize that no amount of help we give you is ever going to be as good as fixing the problem. And I think that's the difference. And that has to be, I think, somewhat inherent in the message. And speaking of messages, I read something that I thought was interesting and, well, it's not even surprising. I read a piece by uh, Paul Krugman. Now, those of you that are Paul Krugman, New York Times writer, who somehow won a, a, a Nobel Prize for economics, in, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. And he has uh, been writing for the New York Times on the left side of things, and he has moved further and further to the left. And uh, the small, tiny little ties to reality that he ever had have been snipped away because he's just floating around out there in, in sort of uh, progressive space. But he wrote something that is is sort of right in the thinking of many of the folks on the left, and it's, what's wrong with rural America? Now, their idea of rural America is pretty much anything that isn't downtown in a big city. I mean, as far as they're concerned, you know, some of the outlying suburbs of the big cities are rural America. What was interesting about it was the way he writes. And, and this is not, he's not the only one, this is all over the place. The way they write about America that isn't in one of the big major cities, and I mean really kind of in the middle of one of the big major cities. That's what they see. And everything out there is beginning to seem stranger and stranger to them. And when you read them, and you know, we've talked about this in, in the past, but it just seems to be get worse. They, they talk about somebody that might live on a farm in Indiana or uh, Nebraska as though they're some aboriginal tribe in the Amazon. Just completely, who knows what they're thinking? You know, what, you know, what do they worship? What do they do? How do they spend it? How do they dress? You know, do they wear shoes? Uh, do they communicate like you and I? I mean, it has that flavor to it. And now we've added to that, uh, the idea that there's something wrong in rural America. And of course, that's because in his words, as I recall, uh, rural America has become MAGA land. Yes, MAGA land. Uh, that's uh, that's rural America. And Amer- rural America apparently is mad, mad because people aren't listening to them. Well, that's true. And uh, their concerns. And how do we, you know, how do we calm rural America down? And when you read it, it isn't really about listening to people who don't live in the in the middle of big cities. It's more about some way to shut you up. Uh, you know, you, you really if you don't live in Manhattan, you don't really know what's going on. And I constantly uh, pops in my mind every so often that famous cover from New Yorker magazine. Uh, you remember, I think it was probably from the early part of the 20th century where the New Yorker was, you know, the, this guy with the top hat and a monocle, you know, and he's looking at a, a map of the United States and there's Manhattan and then a few of the big cities on the on the East Coast. And there's like this just vast emptiness. And then. Way off in the distance, there's like a tiny dot or something that might be like Los Angeles. And that's how they see. They don't understand why the rest of the country is important. And their idea of the rest of the country, if they think about it at all, I guess, is to supply them with stuff. 
and to be quiet about it when we do. And so when you read these articles, uh, you realize what first happens is this disconnect from the rest of the country. And that is they, they just flat don't understand how people make a living, what they do, what's important to them, how they spend their free time. I mean, a lot of these characters, I mean, a surprising a lot of these characters don't even own a car. A lot of them don't know how to drive. Uh, so imagine uh, what they think about a snowmobile, right? Or a four-wheeler. They see people, what? It's, it, it's, it's like it's an alien landscape to them. You know, oh, what do you mean? You, the, the rich ones have, uh, you know, they Uber or they're driven to work. And the ones that can't afford to do that, you know, you know, wait on the subway platforms and hope they don't get attacked. Uh, you know, so that they don't, they don't relate to any of that. And even the shopping, it's like I railed last week, rather, I just criticized last week, this ridiculous bag ban we have in Colorado. Well, we're going to have to have a statewide initiative and get it repealed. That's what it's going to take. Uh, the, the legislature won't do it. I, partly because they just got an additional group, like we talked about, you know, a couple segments ago, of Democrats in there. So they feel empowered. If we're not careful, if we keep stumbling along the path we have, we're going to give them a supermajority where uh, enough of these characters in the legislature can come up with a bad idea that the governor won't be able to veto it, even if we had a Republican governor, which seems like a long ways off. But even if you had one that wasn't a bad Democrat governor, I mean, that's what that supermajority means in California. I mean, the, the minority has no say. And we're headed that direction if we don't get straightened out. We had a shot to take something back in the Senate this time. Instead, we lost. And it was just, a, it's a confusing mess. And when you start trying to look into some of these races to see what happens, of course, all of them are a little different, but it's very confusing. And mainly, it's messaging. One of the big messages, of course, and this is sort of the rural city divide thing, perhaps. I don't even know. I don't think that everybody in the city feels the same way. But, you know, the Dobbs decision coming out on abortion, repealing Roe v. Wade. One of the things that writers have pointed out, and I think they are correct uh, on the uh, you know, the conservative side, even National Review, which I don't read the National Review that much because I think it's pretty squishy. Uh, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, uh, the Republicans who uh, – you know, sort of country club Republicans, you know what I mean? Not that I would want to belong to a country club. I just don't think anybody would take me. But anyway, uh, you know, that's sort of, oh, well, you know, those people out there, they're, they're good people, whoever they are and whatever they do. Uh, you know, that's about as far as they get. There's That's kind of the tone in National Review sometimes for me. But And they certainly don't like Trump, or really they don't like Trumpism. I can understand if they don't like Trump. He can be abrasive and difficult, those kinds of things. You can feel whatever you want to about him. But the ideas that he put forward work. They just do. So you can not like the messenger, but his ideas work, and they've been proven to work, and they'll work again. If Trump wants to implement them, if somebody likes him, I think they'll work fine. If you elect someone who has the same ideas and will work hard like him to get him in, they will still work there too. But... You know, they're a little squishy, not just on disliking Trump, a little squishy on some of the, you know, the sort of Trump type philosophy. But nevertheless, moving on from that, I think they are right that the Dobbs decision came down and the 
conservatives and Republicans were not ready for that. We had assumed, and many more even than I, had assumed that that wall was up so tight and so tough that that wasn't going to happen. That at the best we were going to do is going to be able to chip away at it and get some, you know, get some kind of motion maybe on uh, partial birth and those kinds of things. And so when the decision went down and went back to the states, many of the candidates and the party itself were completely unprepared for it. And, and I've mentioned this before. The Democrats had an answer, not a good answer, but their answer was abortion all the time, anytime, whenever. That's it, you know. Now, that alienates some people, but it was an answer. And the Republicans had people who don't believe in it at all, people who wanted to uh, limit it to the first trimester, uh, some other things, you know, some kind of – there was no coherent policy. People just didn't have one, and they just didn't develop one. And a lot of these places, the candidates didn't have a good position on it in the sense that it, they couldn't articulate it. And I think that didn't help, and not because the positions themselves were bad, but it enabled the left to put out all kinds of nonsense about what the conservative position was, you know, following Dobbs. And many of the positions that they scaremongered people out there, believe me, and they were putting this stuff out here, was that uh, the re- Democrats were going to, the Republicans want to do away with birth control, make interracial marriage illegal. I mean, just everything except go back to the way America was in 1861, which I'm sure if given enough time, they would have accused Republicans to do that. I mean, they've sort of been doing it already. Um, they regularly accuse Republicans of wanting America to be like it was in 1951 in Mississippi. Uh, and if you watch some of the shows that you see on oh, Netflix or Hulu or some of these other places that get produced about things, they have anything to touch on those kinds of issues, you think, what, what, that's not America anymore. You know, assuming it was like that then, it certainly isn't like that now. They've, they've found a time machine and they've, they've put Republicans in it and they've transported Republicans back to a completely different era and told everybody that's what they want now. So the lack of that coherent messaging, uh, about this is what we ought to do. We should maybe have votes in each state. We should, you know, some, something. I think was was difficult, and I think that caused people to pause. They didn't hear a message or anything that was like said very clearly from you know a party's position or something like this, and so they were much more susceptible to the crazy talk from the left, and they really, really beat it into people. If you look at what was going on in some of the left-leaning news sites and so forth you would not recognize the positions that they were accusing conservatives of advocating for. It just didn't make, it wouldn't have made any sense to you. But that what was going on. Remember, you just have to see how, how out, outsized these things become. And you can see it in, in a more, even a more obvious way. Look at the Second Amendment. Look at the way the, the Democrats talk about it. Gavin Newsom calls it a suicide pact. Right? Uh, Geraldo Rivera on Fox the other day grabbed a musket and started waving it around on, in some kind of interview with Sean Hannity. Like, this is the gun that the founders had in mind. You can, everybody can have a musket as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, right, Geraldo. I mean, what an interesting way to freeze something in time. It, it would be interesting if you froze the rest of the uh, 
Bill of Rights that you're crazy about to what was expected in 1789. I don't think you're willing to do that. You seem to want to let it, let these other things grow and the way the world changes, they change with it. The interpretation doesn't change. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's a living document and has to be interpreted. What I'm saying is freedom of the press. I could just hold up a newspaper and say that's what they had. They had it then, and it was printed by hand. So that's what they meant. Anything else that's not a newspaper printed by hand like they did in 1789 is not protected by the First Amendment. That's the same reasoning Geraldo uses when he waves a musket around. The musket at the time, the brown bass, even the Kentucky long rifle that we developed here, um, was the assault rifle of the time, if you want to say that. And, of course, Biden saying that, well, you couldn't buy a cannon. Of course you could buy a cannon. You could make a cannon. Nobody had anything. Nobody said anything about cannons. might make your neighbors a little nervous. Uh, might make your relatives a little nervous if you make your own cannon and go try and, you know, use it because they might stick to the blow up. But, yeah, you could make a cannon. People made all kinds of things. The Gatling gun was invented by a farmer, as I recall. You know, so let's let's not twist history's arm too much because we might break it. But so when when you see how they they maneuver around these parts of the Constitution, it's not hard to see how they were out there saying all these crazy things about the Dobbs decision. And unless you really have your groundwork laid about how you're going to answer those questions, it lets them fill in the blanks. And I think that was part of a problem. Not the whole problem or even uh, even that significant, but it's just part of a puzzle that we had there. And uh, we need a better strategy on a national level, and we need candidates on a local level that can talk about positions and not just jingoism, not just repeat the same lines over and over again. It's great that you love America and you want everyone to be free and this and that, how are you going to do that? All right. Give me some practical notions. What do you want to see done? What, you know, what key do you want to turn in that lock legislatively if you're running for a legislative office? We got to have somebody that can articulate it and be clear and be consistent. We have a consistent national message, a consistent local message. Remember, what made the foreign policy so great under Ronald Reagan was the fact that a guy working as a subsecretary in the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia at the time, knew what Ronald Reagan wanted in foreign policy because it was clear. That's what makes things work. We'll be back next week.